Welcome to SimonCast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I'm John Shaw, the director of the Institute. In SimonCast, we aim to keep the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well through wide-ranging civil conversations. And we're really privileged today to be joined by one of the most interesting experts in issues pertaining to climate policy, Alice Hill. Alice is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, has a very interesting background. She grew up in Washington, D.C., attended Stanford as an undergrad, went to law school at the University of Virginia, had a really interesting legal career as a judge and prosecutor, uh, then became a senior member of the Obama administration, first at the Department of Homeland Security, then the National Security Council, got involved very much in climate-related issues. Uh, since leaving government, she has worked at the Hoover Institution and also now is a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and has written uh, a really important and terrific book called The, Cli the Fight for Climate After COVID-19. And we are going to spend a lot of time talking about this really important and, and interesting book. So, Alice, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your background. I know uh, you went uh, from law school, did some other things, but became uh, you know very active in the legal community in Southern California. You were a, a, in the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in L.A., and then also was served on the California uh, California court system. Tell us about. Uh, I know your 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 experiences as a judge and prosecutor were varied and complex. But as you think back on those years, what kind of skills did you pick up? What sort of, per, you know, perspectives shaped your your subsequent career? Well, I actually believe that they have shaped my career a great deal. Uh, the skills that you need uh, as a prosecutor. I was first a prosecutor, the chief of the white collar unit, actually in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, and was the co-lead prosecutor on the biggest white collar case uh, up to that time that the FBI had ever prosecuted, Charlie Keating. He was um, a financier that was based in Phoenix and defrauded many, many people. What I learned from there is that you can't be embarrassed about asking questions. Uh, you should treat uh, everything you hear with a healthy dose of skepticism. And if you don't understand, uh, ask the follow-up question. The other thing you learn as a prosecutor is you'll be hearing lots of information and you need to uh, begin to organize that information into a coherent uh, form uh, so that you can understand whether a crime has been committed, whether you need to go forward or not. Uh, and then when I became a judge, you know, the definition of what a judge does is a judge makes decisions. Uh, and um, Fortunately, that gives you a lot of practice in making decisions. It turns out I was a supervising judge. Sometimes there are people who become judges who have difficulty reaching decisions, and it's a really poor career choice if you're uh, struggling over every decision. But what that helped me know is that you have a responsibility to make decisions, and particularly as a trial court judge, your responsibility is also to keep things moving uh, so that you're not clogging up the wheels of justice. Uh, so that gave me a confidence in my decision-making ability and learning what information I needed to feel comfortable that my decisions would mostly be right. Uh, no, no one will get it right all the time, and then you have to come develop the skills to adjust to the fact that you might make mistakes, but that can't stop you from moving forward. So I found when I got into the policymaking world, those skills were very helpful. Well, Alice, you also talk in your book about the importance as a judge and presiding over cases in which there's a lots of scientific information that is pertinent and relevant. And you're an attorney, um, but you have to train yourself to, to, to understand some of these scientific concepts and not be intimidated by them and, and sort of break them down into their basic elements. I mean, it seems to me that as, I was, as your book describes, I mean, part of your experiences both as a prosecutor and judge is this kind of continual self-education and learning that uh, particularly became relevant when you moved into the policymaking realm and just jumped into the climate array of issues. Absolutely, because as a, either as a prosecutor or a judge, you're not necessarily expert in the field. You're just examining what happened uh, and then trying to make uh, sense of it and, and also understand it. So it 
used to, it still does drive me crazy when some people say uh, in explaining why they're skeptical about climate science, well, I'm not a scientist, I can't really judge this. And I want to invite them to come into courtrooms across the nation where cases, we're really deciding the fate of someone's life, where we have the death penalty, jurors, and many of them don't have a scientific background, don't even maybe have a high school diploma, are asked to make very important decisions about the fate of very important cases based on scientific evidence. It's just accepted that if the science is good and allowed into the courtroom, we can rely on it. And the same thing is true with climate science. We don't all need to be climate scientists. I'm not a climate scientist in order to understand what the climate scientists are telling us and why what they're telling us matters for the future of the planet. Well, one, one final piece of this that I'd like to talk about is I, I recall a story you told in your book in which I think it was when you were a prosecutor and you maybe you had this very sprawling, complex fraud case before you and you're, you're dealing with a young attorney and he's like, where do I start? And you said, start somewhere and dig. And it was to me really kind of a, an important insight because, you know, in a lot of projects, there's a clear point of entry and you, you plunge into it. But there are some projects where there just really isn't. And the only way you can learn it is just plunging in and then trying to kind of piece together the world that surrounds you. Talk about that for a sec. Well, absolutely. Uh, and you see with uh, big issues, including climate sometimes, people are frozen. They just don't know. It's so big. But um, it's a little like Mahatma Gandhi, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a step. So you, what you need to do is figure out where a point of entry and start going. And then over time, of course, your understanding will grow, the aperture of the facts that you can consider will grow, but not moving forward is not an answer, uh, in my opinion, when you have a responsibility uh, to, if you're making policy or if you're a prosecutor deciding whether to go forward with a case or not, to bring charges, uh, or if you're a judge deciding how that case needs to be uh, resolved. All of it require a certain um, willingness to say, I'm not the expert here, but I'm going to find the place to begin to educate myself and those that are involved with this, we'll educate ourselves together to be able to move forward. So really useful skills for anyone who wants to take on these kinds of roles and uh, to understand that there'll be a period of uncertainty and not feeling so comfortable, but then over time, uh, the path will begin, become much clearer. Well, let's talk about your, your work in the public policy realm. And you had the, the great foresight to be very, very nice to your seatmate at the University of Virginia Law School, who became uh, President Obama's uh, Director of Homeland Security, and obviously it wasn't just being nice, but your you know incredible professional career uh, persuaded her to bring you on board, and and you became you know DHS is the third largest agency in the state in the federal government. It's a massive, sprawling uh, entity that's involved in all realms of uh, preparation and disaster anticipation. Talk about plunging into that world, and then particularly how it kind of shifted you into. Uh, kind of decisively into the lane of climate work? Well, DHS, uh, and this was 2009, of course, it was born out of the events of 9-11. Uh, and a number of agencies were crammed into the broader umbrella of the Department of Homeland Security. There were over 200,000 employees when I arrived. Uh, but still, the different cultures of those sub agent, the agencies that make up the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, uh, they each had their own culture. So you had customs and border protection, where uh, the customs agents had one kind of uniform and the Border Patrol had another kind of uniform. You had Coast Guard, which is one of our oldest services uh, in the country, uh, long uh, history of guarding our waterways. You had secret service responsible for guarding the president and other political um, leaders. And uh, you had then FEMA in charge of disasters. Um, and then the immigration service, so deciding who gets to stay in the United States. 
all of those under this umbrella and all struggling to learn how we are going to be one agency, we called it one DHS, and uh, be able to keep the nation safe with this strong overlay that never again could the nation go through an event like uh, September 11th. So strong anti-terrorism focus. So I became the senior counselor to the secretary and really she asked me to take on special projects that were of importance to her. Uh, one of them was to create a anti-human trafficking campaign. So I led the development of the blue campaign, which is now federally funded uh, in the budget and is uh, 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 addresses human trafficking uh, risks. Uh, it addresses identification of victims and then uh, prosecution of human traffickers. Uh, and then I handled a number of other things, including biological threats, uh, the surge of young children appearing at our southern border uh, in record numbers. Uh, and then climate change uh, was also uh, added to my portfolio. Some because some of these issues I took on because I was directly directed by the secretary, some because a crisis was brewing and she asked me to help out to make sure we could contain the crisis and others because no one else in the department wanted really to take the lead. And that was certainly where climate change fell. And then after a stint there, you went to the National Security Council and became director of a the Resilience uh, Project or program. So talk about that, that experience. So after I'd been at DHS um, in Obama's second term, Secretary Napolitano was uh, moving to California to head the uh, University of California system, be the president of the UC system. Um, and because of my work at DHS, uh, we had really taken a serious look at what the threats were uh, from climate change for this huge sprawling security agency. And there were many threats posed by climate change. We, my, the task force I assembled wrote a number of very forward looking reports. Uh, they caught the attention of the White House and eventually I was asked to join the White House first in a position as advisor to the Homeland Security Advisor, uh, Lisa Monaco, and then eventually as senior director for the uh, Resilience Directorate, which is part of the National Security Council, and I became special assistant to President Obama. So my responsibilities in that Resilience Directorate were to develop policy to address catastrophic risk, and including in that were the climate risks like extreme flooding, extreme heat, wildfire, uh, and national security risks from climate change. Well, I gather from your book that you know in this work, I mean, your 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 job is to bring forward to very very busy people some some looming threats that maybe are not immediately on the doorstep but are potentially very catastrophic as you say and as we know in government where as i think you put it you know the urgent wins out uh over the important um probably when you're bringing these long-term challenges to the policy discussion people are saying okay we'll take care of that later let's deal with the crisis of the day i mean talk about that the the the, the kind of looming long-term threat and how that tends to be set aside to deal with the crisis of the day? Well, it is a big challenge in government because, and particularly in the White House, where there are crises unfolding across the nation at all times. Uh, initially, when I was approached to take on the job of Senior Director for Resilience, that directorship included response to major disasters. Uh, and in my observation, it's very difficult if you're in charge of response to really drive long term policy that's looking about at um, reducing risk before disaster strikes. It's just you'll be in, engaged in response, then the team, once the crisis passes, or at least it's not as acute, the team's very tired and it's <clears throat> difficult to get back to that policy. So I asked for a split and I asked, let's just, can I have a group of uh, directors who were only going to focus on long term policy because I think then we could deliver the kinds of policies that um, we've identified the nation could use to reduce risk before disaster strikes. And why it's so important to focus on policy before disaster strikes is that we know for every dollar we spend, we save six 
$8 to $11 in damage recovery costs. So it's really fiscally sound to invest in pre-disaster risk reduction. And that's what our unit specialized in. So trying to get the coalition of the willing, once we could work through what a policy would look like, most people saw and would take a little bit of time out of the day to say, yeah, we understand. We know why that's a good policy. We know why we need to support it. And we'll help you get it to the president's desk so he can sign it and we can have that in place. So it, it was just having the time to think through what the policy would look like, winning adherence and supporters through the short policy steps to get to the president uh, was less of a challenge. The challenge was having the time to actually think about the policy and develop it. So it was going to be in a form that a president could sign. Well, let's talk about COVID. And in your book, you write very, um powerfully that, you know, the threat of a pandemic disease spreading across the world has been, you know, well recognized by scientists for many, many years. Um, you know, most scientists have said it's coming sooner or later, let's get let's get ready to respond. Um, and yet COVID hit and, um, you know, the United States didn't respond well, the world didn't respond well. And in your book, you, in some of your talks, you talk about three lessons. And I, I, let me just touch on them and then have you ex, extrapolate. I mean, the first is just the importance of leadership and just understanding the importance of the moment and seizing. Um, the second is just the importance of acting early to jump in before it becomes just out of control. And the last is just the notion of crises that don't respect borders, even though our political system does, crises don't. So talk about those kind of three broad lessons you learned from COVID, and we'll, we'll use that to pivot to climate. Sure. Uh, well, I'll start with the um, border issue. You know, humans uh, have spent about the last 8,000 years crafting jurisdictional borders to organize themselves so that they, they have cities, they have states, they have nation states, sometimes they organize themselves in regions. If you look across the United States, we have some 90,000 jurisdictions from the school board to maybe the emergency management jurisdiction to the county, to the city, to the township. Pretty complicated when you're trying to plan for something that doesn't honor borders. And pandemic, biological threats do not honor borders. They're not going to stop uh, right at that line uh, between two countries, and nor do climate change impacts. They just blast across those borders, and the borders are truly irrelevant in terms of the events, but they're highly relevant in terms of our response. Because if we get caught up in not having a regional or an appropriate level response, what one uh, city or jurisdiction decides to do could have dramatic impacts on adjoining communities. So these threats require really a change in our paradigm for planning and for reacting for events that uh, will not uh, be respectful of all that emphasis and organization that we put on to make sure that we get the job done in everyday times. And that just requires us to begin to incentivize regions to plan regionally, to help um, jurisdictions plan emergency management across borders, early warning systems that are consistent with one another, um, stockpiling on a regional basis so that we don't have communities running deeply short uh, while another community is uh, sitting on a lot of goods. So it's a new uh, approach uh, and uh, a very important one. The, Next is that we do need to act early. Um, we are on notice and, and very much on notice about biological threats. I mean, we've had the plague, we've had the 1918 uh, flu. And in fact, in um, 2017, I wrote an article saying it's the 99th anniversary of the uh, 1918 flu. We should be doing more to get ready. Uh, it's coming. And then uh, we've had SARS, Ebola, MERS, all of those put us on notice that uh, 
these threats don't honor borders and with climate change, these threats are exacerbated. It's more likely uh, that they will cross borders. We're seeing more parasitic diseases, for example, crossing borders than they have before uh, as a result of climate change. Uh, and we also know in a globalized world with everyone getting on the plane, we are highly vulnerable to these. So that requires us uh, to invest earlier um, because if we stop or, or invest in pre-disaster mitigation, as I've mentioned, we can have much better outcomes than we wait for the bad, if we wait for the bad thing to happen, many more deaths, destruction, uh, and the recovery is that much harder. For all of this, we need leadership. It really um, will not happen without strong leadership uh, pushing for greater action for preparedness. Uh, and I think this was very dramatic in the case, if you examine the outcomes for the United States and for South Korea. You know, the COVID was detected in South Korea and the United States on the very same day in January 2020. Um, and shortly thereafter, uh, South Korea grew to have the most cases outside mainland China. Meanwhile, in the United States, uh, President Trump was saying, well, it's just one case, it's no big deal. Uh, in the United States. And of course, anyone who's worked on a pandemic knows probably there are undetected cases in the United States, and this looks like a highly transmissible disease. There's going to be a lot of disease very quickly here. Um, South Korea, which had had a number of close calls with SARS and MERS, they mobilized in their own terms as a like an army. Uh, they immediately started tracking every case started examining what was happening. They, they borrowed from Starbucks to have pass-through, drive-through testing. Um, they pour, poured a huge amount of resources in it. And so the last time I checked, which was this summer, we had some 650,000 deaths. Uh, South Korea had 2,000. Now their, their population is 50 million, ours is over 300 million. Uh, so um, early action pays off in terms of containing the disease, and that means your, your leaders need to prepare, and then when a disease hits, they need to understand what's at stake, and uh, that these plans that hopefully many have been working on need to be activated right away uh, to make sure that we contain the harm as quickly as possible. Well, let's talk, we've been kind of skirting around climate and let's kind of plunge in. And in your book, you make a, a very clear, powerful case that for six or 7,000 years, our climate has been pretty stable. And we've, you know, in, in kind of unconscious ways, our, our lives are built around the premise that what happened yesterday probably is going to, you know, be relevant to how we behave tomorrow and so forth. But the climate has changed and you write uh, and so we've assumed, you know, that, that things are going to continue, but, but you say, but that assumption is no longer valid. Human activity has caused the earth to warm 20 times faster than when it transitioned out of the last ice age about 12,000 years ago. And that rate is accelerating. And then you add, we need to confront the never before experienced reality that the globe's climate has begun to move beyond its stable boundaries. Talk about that. Well, that I think is the hardest lesson for all of us really to internalize. So human civilization has flourished during this period of a very stable climate. Uh, and that means we have agriculture, we have cities, we've had enormous progress uh, in terms of um, human, the conditions that we all live in. But everything we've built every natural system that we depend on uh, has developed with that assumption that the climate remains stable. And so if we're talking about a land use where we put development of new housing, for example, or how we build those new houses, though the decisions about how and where we build rests on the assumption, well, you know, the last extreme we had is pretty much all we need to plan for. The last worst flooding, the last heat wave, the last whatever. That's what we need to plan for. And if we get that, if we plan for that, we'll be safe going forward because 
The climate of the future will resemble that of the past. But anyone who's been looking out the window this past year knows that that assumption is no longer true. We are hitting new extremes and we haven't even warmed anywhere near uh, what is anticipated will occur. We're hitting new extremes that cause the infrastructure to fail. It causes homes to be flooded. It causes fields to not produce. Uh, huge disruption. No, NOAA has determined that since 2017, the nation has suffered $700 billion worth of damage from uh, natural disasters worsened by climate change. And we know the scientists can tell us, for example, the Pacific Northwest heat wave this summer was 150 times more likely as a result of climate change. In other words, virtually certain climate change contributed to it. So we know that these events are getting bigger and more powerful, more destructive, but our systems, our engineering, our land use, our infrastructure design, our assumptions about, for example, the flows of water for hydropower, for flooding, have not adjusted. So right now we are building in places destined to flood and burn, and we are also building in ways that make them more vulnerable to these events. And then we're building different kinds of systems dependent on natural systems, uh, be it the amount of solar energy or the amount of uh, water flow in a river that will turn out to not be so good in the future. Um, and it, it shows up in asphalt buckling because the asphalt is only designed to be a certain level of heat and now we're having much more heat on it. Same thing with, uh, for example, train tracks. Uh, you may have heard of a sun kink before. If the tracks get too hot, the steel just kinks and that causes a derailment. Uh, and one thing we know with climate change, we'll have more extreme heat. Uh, and then we know that we're developing right next to the coast uh, and that the coast will have sea level rise. And with sea level rise comes bigger storm surge, that wall of water that comes in and floods. So we haven't adequately accounted for these new risks. Uh, that's a matter of extreme urgency in my opinion, but it, it's hard to do. Yeah, our engineers don't fully understand it. Our cost benefit analysis doesn't reflect it. It looks like it's too expensive to build for the future, but that means that whatever we're choosing to build may be just destined to fail. Uh, so this is a very hard lesson and it applies to every sector of society, every system that we rely on. And so it's taking a while for practices to adjust. Well, Alice, I mean, you write about just the enormous disruption that this climate change is, is having in, in the United States and around the world. And there's a sentence that just blew me away in your book. It's early in the book, and you're talking about just these all these extreme events. And you say, in the Horn of Africa, 200 billion locusts flew in various swarms, 20 times the size of Paris, devouring 50 to 80% of the crops in the field. Yeah. Well, we're seeing um, invasive species uh, be able to be successful in these changed conditions. Just today, I was reading about moose in the Northeast uh, and uh, really horrible pictures of the moose just covered with ticks. Uh, and that's never been a problem before. Uh, but the life cycle of the ticks and their parasites is changing. Uh, and the moose are not well adapted to this. Uh, so if they survive, they are very sickly and damaged, uh, but that's the kind of thing we're gonna see everywhere. Uh, we're seeing algae blooms where we haven't seen them before, and that's because it's warmer water. The nutrients can uh, cause algae to multiply, uh, and that can be highly toxic. We're seeing mosquito-borne diseases in areas we never have before because the mosquitoes have a greater geographic range. Um, and it's really quite uh, scary 
when we think about the health issues that will be resulting uh, from these very rapidly changing conditions, in the case of the locusts, that means that is those farmers lose their agricultural yield, and, and many of these farmers in Africa are small smallhold farms, their families are dependent on that uh, for their own food supplies as well as uh, whatever economic strength they have. All of this means we need to rethink our systems. How do we help those farmers? Are there insurance schemes that we can plan for these type of devastating events that mean uh, they don't have to uh, go into utter penury, bankruptcy, utter disaster as a result of more extreme events. And I would just say one thing, writing this book, I never appreciated what the, what climate change would mean for women and girls, but women and girls are gonna pay an extremely high price uh, for climate change. And we're actually seeing this right now in Afghanistan uh, as they deal with a drought uh, and the collapse of the economy there. Uh, numerous stories coming out of five-year-old girls, three-year-old girls being sold into child marriage uh, because their families need to get hold of cash to either care for the other children who may be malnourished. Uh, I read one very poignant story, a father saying, it's a farmer, he's saying, I have 10 children, I'm, I think he has 11, I'm sacrificing one to save 10. But those are the kinds of choices that are ahead if we have not prepared and they really fall on the backs of girls and women. Girls are pulled out of school. Women have to travel farther. They're much more likely to die in disasters. Uh, and we just haven't paid enough attention to the most vulnerable when it comes to a warming world. Well, one of the really powerful points of your book is as you lay this out and then say, okay, so what do we do? And, and you, you point to two realms of activity. The first is mitigation, trying to stop the, the mistakes or slow them down. You'll stop consuming as many fossil fuels, which lead to greenhouse gases, which lead to, you know, uh, growing heat. Um, so talk about the, the effort at mitigation and what can be done to, to slow down this problem and, and turn the, 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 the curve in a different direction. Well, mitigation is absolutely crucial. Um, and mitigation means that we stop uh, the accumulation of harmful greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We've talked about how um, we had this stable climate uh, for many years. And then with the Industrial Revolution, uh, human activity through deforestation, building practices like using concrete and steel, transportation, fossil fuel powered cars, as well as energy generation, coal power plants uh, and natural gas plants, we started shooting up a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. It's really a pollution into the atmosphere. That pollution has formed this blanket essentially around the globe. And as that blanket thickens, in a delayed process, it causes temperatures underneath that blanket to rise. It's like when you're in a cold winter's night, you put a blanket on, you may in the middle of the night want to kick it off because your body is, the, the heat underneath the blanket from your own body has uh, heated things up. Same concept here, we're heating up. And as a result of that heating up, we are uh, seeing new unprecedented extremes in weather. Um, and then those extremes like drought and higher heat can drive greater and bigger wildfires. So we're seeing lots of cascading impacts as the result of rising temperatures. Uh, and a very important report came out in August of this year. It's issued by an international body of scientists. The scientists uh, are come from, in this report in August, from 62 nations, um, but it's all nations agreed to the report, or at least the executive summary. So it's a consensus report of scientists from across the globe. And it was presented in anticipation of this meeting about climate that occurred in Scotland uh, last month. 
So that report uh, says that we're heating up, that it's causing all of these, uh, or contributing to these worsening extremes. There's no question that human activity is responsible. It's the heating is accelerating, um, but it warns we must contain heating preferably to no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial times to avoid cataclysmic harm to our ecological systems, our built systems, to really human civilization as we've known. So very bold statement. And it also made an important point that every little incremental increase in temperature brings worsening impacts. So it's important to really try to ratchet it down our warming. So that's mitigation. And as I work on mitigation, um, I want to say that we can never put our pedal off the accelerator in terms of stopping the accumulation of these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to keep us all safe. So that's a very important aspect of addressing the climate change problem. And you hear people uh, sometimes uh, speak about some kind of geoengineering solution, some kind of you know, magic technology that will somehow, you know, come in and save the day. And as you write in your book, you said, with climate, there is no vaccine. There is not going to be a miracle save for us. It's just going to require amazingly hard work by all of the important economies and really everyone in the world. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but I do think uh, if nations fail on this effort to contain, and it really needs to be national policy, uh, it's very difficult to achieve this uh, just through individual action or state, uh, excuse me, city subnational action. It really needs to be national policy uh, to drive this across the board at the level it needs to be driven. But what we will see is growing interest in what's you've referenced as geoengineering. Essentially, these are engineering interventions into the global climatic system. Some of them sound quite science fiction-like, uh, like putting gigantic mirrors up to reflect the sunlight back into uh, uh, the uh, space, uh, or spewing some kind of sulfur particles around the globe uh, to cool things, as you see after a volcano. Uh, after uh, Krakatoa uh, exploded in, I think, the late 1800s, um, uh, we saw a cooling of the planet because of all the ash and, and, and uh, sulfur that was spewed out. So we could try to do something like that. Um, but we are seeing very serious attempts. I uh, was in Glasgow at COP26, and I had the opportunity to be on a panel and then spend some time with Sir David King. Uh, he heads climate efforts, uh, an independent climate commission for the UK government, but he also at uh, Cambridge University runs a project focused on refreezing the Arctic. Uh, and I spoke with his scientists. They are absolutely convinced this can work. Uh, they will change the cloud cover over the Arctic to keep it from uh, melting as quickly, which will uh, can uh, control the heating to some extent. So we will see major interventions, uh, attempts for interventions as temperatures continue to rise. And because the extreme events they bring are so damaging, so for example, uh, China has turned and cloud seeding, that's seeding clouds so they cause rain, has been around since the 1940s. There's talk about using it in the Western United States and China is investing in it um, because they are suffering from drought. But if you expand these uh, efforts so greatly and, and introduce new concepts, um, it's not, hard to imagine that some nations or communities could be damaged by these efforts inadvertently. And right now we have no system of governments internationally to control what these uh, experiments or efforts look like. So that is a, a growing field to watch uh, and one I think will be more and more attractive if temperatures continue to rise. Well, and the second big piece then is adaptation. And it, its premise is lots of, you know, 
a change has occurred and it's going to have profound effects for all of our lifetimes going forward. So we need to do things to, to, to make the world safer and more inhabitable. And, and, and you talk about a whole realm of, of a range of, of, of policies in terms of land use, transportation, power generation, flood protection, emergency management, wastewater treatment. Um, but land use strikes me as particularly interesting because, as you point out, you know, we continue to build, both the United States and elsewhere, lots of homes in places that are in acute danger of both flooding and also in terms of fires. So we are, and then you also refer to just nuclear plants, a heavy proportion of seem to be, you know, near uh, rivers and lakes that could flood. So talk about about the whole uh, adaptation realm and what, what can be done to, to make things better. Well, uh, humans have always adapted. So this isn't a new concept. Uh, if um, they've discovered that they had, camped too close to the river, they uh, moved to higher ground. So we, we know we can adapt, uh, but we are seeing events at a scale and a speed that make adaptation more difficult. And what really complicates it is we've already made a lot of investments in places that are going to prove to be a not so wise areas to continue to make big investments in and those are areas that are going to be prone to flooding and in some cases um, wildfire because if an area has previously burned there is a strong likelihood that it will burn again just because of the geography of the particular area so land use will be an important consideration as we make future investments we have a lot of stuff already in places that are risk so we're going to have to deal with those but certainly as we make future investments we want to make sure that those investments are sound and will last during the service life of the investment. And I'll, I'll use an example, bridges. Now, uh, a friend of mine who's an engineer said, Alice, it's generally better if the bridge lasts longer. But most bridges we're planning for 50 or say 100 year service life. Um, and that means that when we're designing it, we want it to, to last that long with maintenance and other things. Uh, the Romans did bridges really well. We have some 900 that are still used today. Uh, but if we don't plan uh, for the future conditions that that bridge will encounter, say 20, 30, 60 years from now, that bridge could be highly vulnerable. It could be extreme heat that affects the steel. It could, and the concrete and the asphalt. It could be higher flood levels uh, than we've ever seen, bigger winds than we've seen. Um, and until we get a practice of incorporating that in our designs, we are at great risk. We currently do not have a building code that reflects future risk. The United States doesn't have one, Canada doesn't have one, Australia, New Zealand, uh, I, I think the Dutch have one, uh, but uh, they certainly plan for the one in 10,000 year event, but we don't. And we also don't have infrastructure standards yet and a practice across the board when building infrastructure to make sure that we make that marginal additional investment, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 20%, maybe it's 50% to have that bridge last longer or at least be built so it can be adapted over time. We don't have that. Typically that uh, portion of the budget gets cut out very early in the process. So we're not investing in that longevity. So it requires us to, to educate uh, the professionals involved, uh, those who are making the investments to understand what's at risk. Because if we see and when we see infrastructure fail, Take a wastewater treatment plant. Um, electric grid goes out because Texas, it got too cold. They hadn't planned for the cold or in California um, because of wildfires or in New York because of flooding. Uh, electric grid grows out, the power goes out, the wastewater treatment plant doesn't have enough power to back up. Uh, we're having whatever event, uh, it uh, overflows, that water goes in, the wastewater treatment is typically near, uh, it's low-lying land, overflows, fouls the uh, adjoining uh, waterways, um, 
power goes out, the health system collapses if we don't have adequate backup power. Um, we've seen this story many times. It just takes a lot of decisions to change the outcome going forward. But if we don't make them, the long-term economic costs are enormous uh, if we don't start protecting ourselves now. Well, you, you referenced Glasgow and, and mentioned that you had been there and you've written about the, the summit. And uh, in an essay you wrote that I recently read, you said, we made a little progress, but not enough. And, um, and this is a paraphrasing, you, you're worried. Tell me what you think, the, what should uh, the average American or even person in the world uh, you know, take from the, the Glasgow summit? What, what, what did we learn about our ability to solve this problem? Well, we have the ability. Uh, I just want to say that that there's no question that we can solve this. Uh, the question is whether we can find the political will. So as an individual, um, you can make sure that uh, you are looking at your political leaders to see if they are a part of the solution. Um, because uh, unless we can garner that political will, and that includes across the world, we will continue to heat up. Uh, the, the news that came out just yesterday uh, about uh, the outcome of the Glasgow summit uh, was a little sobering. Um, we had heard a variety of calculations uh, in the waning days of that summit about what all the promises that were made there could mean in terms of keeping that temperature rise to close to 1.5 degrees. Um, but uh, a very uh, a recent study that was released um, shows that current policies, uh, which don't involve stringent enough cuts to the carbon pollution now, would lead to between 2.3 and 2.9 uh, degrees Celsius increase in temperature by 2100. That's a, up to 5.2 degrees Fahrenheit. That temperature increase carries catastrophic impacts. That means uh, millions, if not billions, of people will be on the move because some areas of the world have become uninhabitable. We're talking average temperatures here, but climate change doesn't fall in an average. It falls in extreme peaks of heat. Um, so like what we saw in the Pacific Northwest, uh, or we saw in uh, uh, Iraq this summer, where I think the thermometers went over uh, 160 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. That's on humans really can't last very long in those conditions. So people will move uh, as land masses lost. People will move uh, and um, migration in when it occurs in large unplanned chaotic ways is highly destabilizing to governments uh, who um, are viewed with distrust uh, by the receiving communities and by those who are the immigrants. So it's uh, something that, a path that we don't want to go down. But um, we have, Glasgow achieved a number of things, but it, it is not the end of the story and we actually need to do a lot more. So I say to anyone, um, if you're interested in climate change, one easy place to start is to start talking about it. You know, we have Thanksgiving this week. Talk to your families about it. Talk to them about your concerns, what we can do. It is this moment, all of us who are alive at this moment who have the power to change the trajectory of his history. And if we don't, uh, certainly those that come after us and even in our own lifetimes, we will see a great deal of suffering. Uh, so Glasgow uh, achieved some, but it's very precarious. Alice, there was an article in The Atlantic in the last, shortly after the summit, and it, it, I want to read a couple sentences and have you react to them. It says, but Glasgow was not last week or now the world's most important city for staving off climate change. That title belongs to Washington, D.C. Over the next few weeks, Democrats in Congress will make a far more influential and far-reaching decision than anything that happened at the U.N. conference. 
they will decide whether to pass President Joe Biden's signature spending bill, which has this Build Back Better initiatives, which it said, um, they say failure to pass this will show that the U.S. is simply incapable of responding to climate change in any organized or systematic way. Um, so maybe a couple parts of that. I mean, just in terms of just the role the United States has to play in this effort and your read of what is now being contemplated on Capitol Hill. Is it is it a game changer or is it just, you know, a little bit more than incremental progress, but not quite not anywhere near enough? How would you assess well, I, um, the United States is a very important player, but we're not the only player. Um, we've got China and India uh, that also are responsible for a great deal of emissions. Uh, we are the second largest emitter right now, but China is by far the largest emitter. And we also uh, are historically the largest emitter and probably the largest emitter, um, or certainly a very large emitter based on our population per capita. Um, so it's important what the United States does. Uh, and this bill that will go to the Senate has some very promising provisions to help us cut emissions. We also had in the infrastructure bill, a lot of um, money going to resilience or adaptation. So these bills are major uh, improvements in uh, the US policy for climate change uh, and will be significant. One thing that I realized when I was in Glasgow, however, is that most of the world is not paying that close attention to what particular bills we are passing or not passing here in the United States. That's just a little bit too much inside baseball. Um, it's uh, really the countries are looking at what is our stated ambition. And then in 2022, when we return and can say we did these things, they'll be looking. Um, but it wasn't, I did not hear anywhere I went, any discussion. Well, you're, you may not pass that bill, so that means whatever. Uh, so I think that's a, a more American-centric view uh, than I found when I was actually uh, in Glasgow meeting with representatives, representatives from 197 nations. So not all of them are following very closely what's happening inside the Capitol. No question, the United States needs to have very strong policies um, to address its own challenges and then contribute to reducing uh, the greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so I'm hopeful that this will pass uh, and the climate provisions will remain in it uh, because that will be a wonderful step forward for the United States. Not our last step. We will continue to have to work at this as we go forward to just keep containing that rise in emissions. Alice, let's go to a couple of questions that people have emailed in. And we received a, a question from Charles from Hoffman Estates, Illinois, which is up near Chicago. And he says, has climate modeling and the use of AI uh, advanced to the point to predict worst case outcomes, such as the British Columbia floods and subsequent climate siege? You might elaborate what the British Columbia floods are. And Oh, well, we just saw terrible flooding uh, occur where just what happens is that uh, warmer uh, temperatures, the uh, clouds can hold more water. And we also get atmospheric rivers that hold more water and they just dump a lot of water onto uh, places all at once. And there is no system that's built to handle that much water at once. So you saw in Houston uh, when Hurricane Harvey arrived and over about four or five days dumped four feet of water just flooded the city because there's no drainage system that we have that's up to that yet we need to plan to have drainage systems that can handle this and that's the same thing that happened in british columbia um so uh can we model that this event will happen on this date in this way no we can model that where we'll see these types of events uh, and we can plan for that consistent trend. Uh, the modeling world, it's pretty complex where we are. Uh, the, we have these gigantic climate models that are really at a very wide scale in terms of geographic coverage. So it's not the kind of scale that you would need as a planner in a particular location. It's covering a wide swath of territory. The computing power required is enormous to do run these computer models. 
So what we have are niche uh, efforts, sometimes run by universities, sometimes by private vendors. There's kind of an arms race right now in terms of localized modeling to inform localized decision making. One of the fears, uh, and I wrote a piece in Nature about this, is we need to have a basic public good of this data available for those communities who can't afford to hire a private modeling firm, and there are many springing up right now, uh, can't afford to pay those prices, that they can have the basic information to inform their important decisions on infrastructure, land use, other things going forward. Um, and uh, that is something I hope develops uh, in the near future, that we have usable information available to um, I refer to a part-time mayor I met who said, you know, I, I understand. I have sea level rise. I have storm surge. She was the mayor of Perdido Beach, Alabama. But I don't, what do I do? I don't have a planning staff. I don't have the data. And we don't have a good answer for her yet. So we need to get that. Um, and obviously we need to get it very quickly because as uh, we rebuild from these events, we want to make sure we're making choices that reflect the future we will experience, not the past we've experienced. Well, that reflects actually a question we received from James from Wilmette, Illinois. He said, and you touched on it a bit earlier, what can ordinary citizens do to spur acceleration of government and private efforts to reduce harmful emissions that produce unwanted climate change? Is it your view that that every, you know, mayor or, you know, state government, I mean, at what level, and in your book you talk about it, it's really critical to have a national framework in place to sort of shape efforts, but is this something that, you know, communities like Carbondale and uh, should be having a, a climate adaptation plan? Oh, absolutely. Every community has should, and then it should feed into a statewide and a regional plan to get over this border issue. Um, so uh, we're seeing now cities being ranked on whether they have uh, both mitigation, cutting emissions plans, and adaptation plans. And that at a very basic level, that needs to occur uh, in order to make sure that you're making wise investments. Otherwise, the bond you issue for whatever improvement you have, uh, that improvement may not last, but you're going to still owe the money on the bond. Um, and you want to make decisions that uh, protect you from paying for something that you never got or you only got it for a few days. Uh, and so, yes, uh, local leaders need to be attuned, uh, emergency managers uh, need to be attuned to the types of risks they'll be seeing. Uh, and uh, we should be making sure that our political leaders are responsive to these concerns. The other thing I would say is that um, any individual's choice probably doesn't make a material difference to um, the level of emissions. And certainly as individuals, we can't protect ourselves against all these events because it requires infrastructure and other things that we can't you know, we can't create our own little island that protects us. We're going to have to be a part of the community that will invest in protections. But we each can make choices that influence our neighbors, that drive uh, greater concern and action. So getting solar on your home, getting, if you can afford it, getting a heat pump, looking at reducing your own carbon footprint, if you can, biking to work, uh, taking public transportation, getting an electric vehicle, uh, uh, eating less meat, um, looking at uh, ways to uh, look at whether I'm going to take that short-term flight to someplace or is there a more carbon-friendly way to get there. All of those choices we can model for each other so that we encourage many more people to act in ways that will ultimately leave everyone safer. It's better for the environment, probably better for our health, uh, better on a lot of fronts. But we know that peer pressure, peer encouragement gets people to make changes that, um, that will ultimately add up to a material difference. Well, final question, Alice. I saw you at a conference in which someone asked you, uh, 
a question along the lines of, you know, gosh, this must be hard, depressing work. And you said, you know, to the contrary, I've never been more energized and focused in my life. I mean, this is so utterly important and this is such a critical time. Talk about that. I think you might even, you might have, <laughs> someone might have used the word evan- evangelical, but but tell, tell us how you view this as maybe part of your career and just sort of the calling you have. Sure. I, you know, I, I look back on my career and I, I did want to have a number of careers, so I'm old enough to know that I was succeeded in that. Um, but I've been very privileged. I have had really interesting topics to work on uh, from chasing people who rob banks with briefcases to uh, working on the state court and working in the administrative level of court system to understand how we administer justice broadly. Uh, I worked, I created a education program for judges. So I've just had really fun, uh, interesting projects, but nothing has been as compelling as climate change. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, first of all, it's, there's no question when I wake up, I have meaning and purpose. This matters. I know what the stakes are. Uh, so if I can have a little, use it, whatever influence I have, change things a little bit, I can help make sure that we have a better outcome. So uh, it's also very intellectually engaging. Uh, it's Sometimes I liken it to the dawn of the internet because so many things are changing so rapidly, as is our understanding of the problem, that um, the self-education portion of it is really exciting. I mean, there's new stuff coming out all the time. So it's building on that knowledge. When I was a judge, uh, our legal system is based on precedent, so we're very attentive to what has what have similar cases decided in the past? And so often I would hear, oh, judge, we can't do that. We already tried it. No, the law says we can't do that. So um, really were had a narrower scope of answers that were acceptable under the law, rightfully so. This isn't a criticism. But you get into climate change, nobody's done anything. All of it's open for innovation, creativity, collaboration to figure out the best way. And so that's why it's just a wide open field. No one can even say, who's a, who's a specialist in climate change? Is it a scientist? Is it an economist? Is it an engineer? It cuts every, across everything. So it's uh, as we build a community of people who are concerned about it, we're all learning from each other in a way that I find very exciting. And the last piece is, um, well, I'll say, I, I, uh, Mark Twain said, if you find a, an area of work that you like, you'll never have to work a day in your life. And I certainly feel that about climate change. I wake up and I'm very excited to get back to working on climate change. But there's a piece of it that I didn't appreciate until I spoke to, as part of a fellowship at Yale University uh, for developing um, people who wanted to speak more publicly about climate change. And one of my fellow fellows uh, was an evangelical minister. And he was describing how he felt about working in climate change. And he said, I feel joy. And that just resonated with me. I thought I've never felt such joy in an area of work. So when I talk to young people and they they seem despondent or they seem like it's too big, I can't get involved. What I hope to convey is that being a part of it gives you this tremendous sense of purpose, agency, and all the psychologists say that's good and healthy and that will keep you from descending into despair. Yes, it's scary. Yes, there could be dark days ahead, but by being engaged, we can all feel like we're doing our bit to try to alter a future that we don't like the looks of. So um, I find this is uh, a really wonderful thing for me in my life to have, by happenstance, stumbled on this topic that matters to everyone, and then to have been able to develop an expertise to be able to contribute. And then I hope, that others will feel they can become involved 
And right now, this moment, there is so much opportunity. It is the Full Employment Act. Everywhere you look, everyone wants to learn about climate, understand what it means. And the more people we have who are informed, the more that we can change. But they'll have plenty to occupy their day. And I, I think they'll find it hugely rewarding, as I do. Great. Well, Alice, thank you so much for your time. This has been so interesting and 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 uh, and inspiring. And I will just say to everyone, if you're looking for a good Christmas present, <laughs> this is really a terrific book to just get around the central concepts of of climate. I know it's a formidable subject. Alice, you know, writes clearly and forcefully. She has great notes. And this is as we all begin kind of get educated in this realm. This is a really a wonderful place to start. So Alice, thanks so much. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to Simon Cast, the official podcast of the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at Southern Illinois University. Simon Cast is produced in collaboration with WSIU Public Radio. You can find Simon Cast wherever you listen to podcasts, including NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to new episodes as soon as they're posted and tell your friends about our show. For more information, visit paulsimoninstitute.org. Thank you for listening and thank you for keeping the legacy of Paul Simon alive and well.